I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Jane Fallon. Her 10th novel, Queen Bee, it's just come out. It's all about Stella, the ruler, the queen bee of a posh street whose life is suddenly turned upside down when Laura moves in nearby and threatens everything. We talk about how the last six months have been and how, actually, almost unlike everyone else, uh, lockdown has, has been quite good for her creatively. Uh, we talk about how her writing has changed for her since her debut, Getting Rid of Matthew, and also, you can hear about how working in telly taught her the basics and the bones and the tricks of storytelling and about putting what you need in there. I'd always, when I was young, sort of emulated someone else's style, which I think is probably a very common thing to do. You haven't quite found your own voice. And and I'd read them back and they were horribly pretentious. And I think, I don't know what this is about. And then I worked in TV for a while. And obviously, when you work in TV, particularly when you work on a soap, which I did in the early days, I worked on EastEnders. Um, you get obsessed with plot. You just get obsessed with how do I keep people interested? You know, what's the big cliffhanger at the end? What is the emotional investment for my viewer? And I think that once I started feeding that into my own writing, I thought, oh, actually, this suits me. It's what I'm good at. It's what I know best. Loads more to come just like that with Jane Fallon in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. Uh, This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a look inside the life of the most successful authors around to figure out how they get ideas, how they plan their day and how they get it down and get it published. Now, my name's Dan Simpson. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, By the way, if you've enjoyed any of the 120 episodes that we've done so far, if you've learned anything from the chats along the way that have helped, that has helped the way that you tell your stories, uh, please leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That way, other writers who need the help of our guests can, can find us. We can make it nice and easy for them. Uh, it takes barely a second. Just head on over to Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. Five stars always helps, by the way. Now, this week, our guest is Jane Fallon. Her new novel, her 10th novel, uh, is Queen Bee. We talk about how she got the initial idea for the story, how it came from the company, which she is sometimes forced to keep. Uh, We also talk about the things that she collects from her travels to inspire her uh, and how working in TV taught her the structure of storytelling and why that's so important and how it helped her find her voice. Uh, Now, she works in a a home full of stories as well. 
Uh, her partner is Ricky Gervais. Uh, so we talk about how much they discuss books and ideas when they're sat around the dinner table too. Uh, and we kick things off, as we always do, with what Jane sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Uh, so my office is really where I keep all of my favourite things. So it's full of books, obviously, like everyone's office, but also I've got things like my childhood teddy bear and um, an old Victorian doll's house that I love. I've got all my sort of random little bits. Whenever we go abroad, I, I always buy a bit of tat, um, but a bit of tat that I love, but it is absolutely a bit of tourist tat. So all of that is in here. So I'm looking at kind of random little Dutch houses and a Swedish rabbit and all sorts of strange things like that. Now, this may be rather pie-in-the-sky question, but but what do you think those are doing to you, this random bit of tat, uh, these like childhood toys and memories that you have? Are they, are they giving you much inspiration? I don't know about inspiration, but I think they relax me, to be honest. I think they make me want to be in this room, and the more I can keep myself in this room, hopefully, the more I'll write while I'm in here. Talk to me about what's on the walls. Have we got art? Have we got pictures? Have we got signed copies of, of posters for your books? Uh, so we have got, there's a Dutch poster for Getting Rid of Matthew. Uh, there's a poster from when Getting Rid of Matthew, which is my first book, was a Richard and Judy, and there's a poster with all the Richard and Judys on. There's a throw from, I'm looking around as I'm speaking, uh, there's a throw from Sweden that I bought when we were on holiday, which is just beautiful. They're all one-offs, and it's a, a load of sheep and one wolf. Uh what else? There's a few. There's a mosaic of my cat that someone did for me. So yeah, bits of art, photographs. There's an old photograph of my dad and his two brothers from the 1930s. You've already mentioned when you go abroad, when when you uh, when you're when you're travelling, you you buy tat. I think more than many authors I've chatted to doing the show, you divide your time amongst different places in different countries, and you you have to do your work while you're there. What is it that you need? when you are working in different countries around the world um, that, that helps you get into the zone to tell your story? The main thing for me is silence. Uh, not silence from street noise or anything. I need silence in the room I'm in. So like no overspill noise from anyone else, no one else in the room making a noise. As long as I've got that and somewhere comfortable to sit and then free access to coffee, um, then I'm fine. A lovely view helps. But generally, I'm pretty good these days. As long as I can sit somewhere other than on a bed, that's the other thing. If I'm in a hotel room and there's only a bed in there and nowhere to sit, I find that quite difficult. But otherwise, I find it pretty easy in hotels to switch off, actually. What about when you're up against it? Are you good at writing while you're travelling on trains and planes? Planes is great. Something about the, the, what the oxygen on planes or the lack of it does to your brain, I find really good. It's, I, I write a lot when I'm on planes, actually. Trains, not so much because there's too much going on. There's too many other people and chatter and, um, and stuff. But planes, because people after a while tend to be quite quiet, I put my noise-cancelling headphones on with nothing playing on them and I'm off. Now, the show is writer's routine, Jane. So, so talk us through yours, if you can. So we do it the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing how does it look? When do you wake up? When will you start? When will you have your breaks? Talk me through the whole thing. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I love the early mornings. That's my favourite time of day. So I always get up between about half five and half six, just because I like to. Um, and I'll pot around for kind of half an hour, but then I'll start writing when it's quiet. Uh, while no one's, you know that no one's going to phone, no one's going to ring the doorbell, no one else is up. So it's a lovely 
time, I think, to write. So I'll write them for a couple of hours, uh, eat my breakfast at some point in that. And then usually our routine, especially at the moment, actually with lockdown, we've got very much into a very set routine. So go for a long walk, hour and a half, maybe over Hampstead Heath. Uh, come back, lunch, snooze. Do you need that much detail? Love I, I, I know it appears <laughs> like the most tedious of stone turning, but I promise it's all gone. No, no, no. I love a little snooze after lunch. Um, and then I'll usually work out at some point. Um, so either just before lunch or in the afternoon. And then I'll take myself off to my office in the afternoon for a couple of hours, a couple of hours more work uh, before I start cooking dinner. How much do you like to get done in a day? You've got these two sections of writing time, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Have you got a word count at all? Yeah, I've got that completely random word count that almost every writer um, subscribes to, which is a thousand words a day. I don't know why. It does sort of work. That for me is about the maximum that I can write of absolutely new stuff. And then if I've still got time after that, I'll maybe go back over some old stuff. I'll go back over I've ri- over what I've written or I'll read everything through. So yeah, roughly a thousand words a day, but I do work a bit. I work any day of the week. I don't just do Monday to Friday. So I generally try and keep to 5,000 words a week if I can. So some days obviously I write a bit less than a thousand. Are you good at switching off in the evening when you've done your thousand words? Do you sometimes find yourself really craving to push on and and you'll draw yourself in? Are you constantly thinking about the story when you're you're making your dinner? I do think about it a lot. I, I... kind of burn out in writing terms by the evening and also my I find my brain works a billion times better in the morning than in either the afternoon or the evening so the evening I find it quite easy to turn off from work at all I do find lying in bed if I wake up in the night that's always I find that's a good time to sort of bubble over plots and worry away at things that are bothering me or you know things where I need to find a little key that I haven't yet found I very much make it up as I go along and I just sort of, because I'm always behind, as I'm sure we all are, and I know other writers who are so brilliant, they have, they'll have a chart about what chapter they need to be on on what particular week or whatever, and I, don't, I can't do any of that. Um, so I am pretty bad, but also because I know that I'm going to be behind and I know there might be a period where, you know, I have periods sometimes when just for a few days you can't write anything, you can't think straight, your brain's not clear. So I, I'm quite good at trying to use those two periods of work that I allow, you know, I give myself every day. Just because otherwise I think I'd get so behind and then you just get in a blind panic and then you can't rush at all. Is there anything that you you, you can rely on when the words aren't coming uh, that, that maybe really do really does help you out? I mean, you go for your exercise, you have your, your snooze in the afternoon as well. Is there something that you can just draw on, maybe a particular type of music or a coffee at a certain moment that, that, of the day that just helps unclog the block? I think my best unclogging... Um, mechanism is walking actually I find just fresh air and just a walk really helps um so sometimes I'll do that if I get really stuck I'll just go for a, another walk <laughs> get another walk um but on my own this time so I find walking on my own is quite useful to just you know let things bubble away in your brain you love silence you said you said that earlier on does that mean that you're one of the only writers I think who's found lockdown to be quite beneficial in ways I mean if you're writing in this golden window early on in the day because you know the phone's not going to ring because you know people aren't going to knock on the door for the last six months of lockdown no one's been knocking on the door how have you found this this strange time has has affected your your creativity and your inspiration do you know what you're right it has been quite good for me actually because like you say people aren't 
knocking on the door. And if even if you get a delivery, they ring the bell and run away before you can breathe on them, which is great. <laughs> so you don't have to have a conversation. Um, I, I got a little bit stuck at the beginning. I think just because I think a lot of people did because it was such an odd time and we really didn't know what was going on. And, you know, it felt like there was a bit of a weird air of panic in the world. So I had a couple of weeks when I found it hard, but actually since then I found it really good. And it is an introvert's paradise. Um you know, not knowing that you're not going to have to really go to any meetings or do anything. You can, you can, everything I've done, I've done on Zoom or over the phone, and you don't even have to get dressed. <laughs> it's great. Are there a lot of storytelling discussions in your house? Uh, kind of on and off. I mean, it's hard with a novel because if you get stuck at any point, then in order to get anyone to help you, it's such, you've got such a lot of ground to cover. So if I'm stuck on a particular point and I'll say to my boyfriend, oh, look, you know, I'm trying to think of a something for something. But then you have to unravel so much of the plot in order for them to be able to say anything helpful, if that makes sense. Because otherwise, they, you know, it's, if it'll be a very, very specific thing. It'll be, no, but it can't be like that because of this, this, this and this. And sometimes it's just a bit too much like hard work really but yeah we do we talk about um we do talk about stories and ideas and and stuff like that in a more sort of general level not on a micro level let me take you back to the the room the office that you're in if I were to because what's flagged this up is that you say you don't really kind of chart your story the whole time you don't have a big spreadsheet you don't have any of that going on if I were to sit in your office um when you're in the middle of telling a story and you weren't there, would I get a clue as to the story that you are telling? Have you got like inspirational pictures direct for like a, a street with that's full of mansions in Queen Bee? Have you got any of that going on? Uh, no, post-its. You would probably get some from the post. My desk is always littered with post-its with plot points on. Um, so yeah, you'd get it from that. Uh, that's probably about it, I think. But I do that and I shuffle them around a lot and I spend a lot of time staring at them and inserting new ones. Now, before we get into talking about Queen Bee, how much do you tend to know about a book before you sit down to write it? If you don't have some all-encompassing spreadsheet that, that lets you know exactly what beats you need to hit at what moment, how much do you know about a story before you like to sit down and begin to tell it? Um, actually, potentially quite a lot. I do always write a synopsis, um, really just for my own sanity because I need with my books I, I tend to write best when I'm writing something very plotty and my books tend to have a lot of sort of twists and turns and so before I actually start writing on a first draft I need to know that the story's got enough potential for a lot of twists and turns in it so I would always write myself a synopsis and then that's probably what maybe two three pages long and I then put that to one side and actually inevitably you find when you start writing that you veer off from that completely but I find it very useful in that middle part where I will always get a bit lost and forget what I'm writing about it's very useful to go back and read that and think oh yeah I had a point I knew I had a point at some moment in my life um so yeah I wouldn't just dive into a first draft and just start writing without having worked out the big plot beats just not the small you know I don't break it down into chapters or anything like that but I have the big twists and turns all in place you say that your stories are very plotty, that they work best when they're plotty. That's what you said. Uh, how have you figured that out uh, through 10 novels? When, when did that kind of realisation dawn that this is, what, this is how you write best? Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, I think I started, like, Getting Rid of Matthew was quite plotty. I think I started like that. Maybe it's, I know what it is, maybe. It's because I had written, tried to write books all my life from when I was a child. And 
they'd all I'd always when I was young sort of emulated someone else's style which I think is probably a very common thing to do you haven't quite found your own voice and and I'd read them back and they were horribly pretentious and I think I don't know what this is about and then I worked in TV for a while and obviously when you work in TV particularly when you work on a soap which I did in the early days I worked on EastEnders um, you get obsessed with plot you just get obsessed with how do I keep people interested you know what's the big cliffhanger at the end what the emotional investment for my viewer and I think that once I started feeding that into my own writing I thought oh actually this suits me it's what I'm good at it's what I know best um, so it sort of happened just before I wrote my first book I think and I think that was why with my first book I suddenly got brave enough after 40 whatever years to actually show someone a book I'd written. Talking about soaps uh, how much because the formatting of of a 30 minute episode of EastEnders it's quite tight it's not predictable but there are certain beats that I I imagine writers and story runners and and producers kind of like to hit to make sure that someone's going to stick around for the rest of the show what what else did working on TV and working on soaps teach you about storytelling generally for you I think oh what do I think I think probably the other big thing that it really helped me with was dialogue um, because obviously working in TV, you're only really working in dialogue. And I have a, a, a big bugbear in books that I, in when I read something, if I feel like the dialogue's not natural. Um, and so I've always worked really hard to try, because I think when people speak, I mean, listen to the way I'm rambling on at the moment, you stop and you start and you, you correct yourself and you trip over your words and no one speaks in beautifully formulated sentences. And and I've always found that something that I don't really like in books when people are, especially if the, that person is narrating the book, that their narration will be quite um, relaxed and then their dialogue is incredibly stilted. Uh, so I think it taught me a lot about dialogue, at least to think about dialogue a lot. Uh, that's probably the other main thing, I would think. If you're writing dialogue that is quite meandering, that is natural and thoughtful, how much of a problem does that, present when you when you're coming to the editing and you're you know you're trying to to cut syllables off a sentence to make it as tight as possible uh yeah I don't know that I don't think it does become a problem I think my thing is always does it sound real so obviously you don't want to just bore people to death by um telling them every beat of every conversation so I would pare it down in that way in you know if I feel like it goes on too long but actually, in terms of the flow of the sentences, I like them to be quite loose. I like them to be... I think you get a lot of people's um, thought process and emotional state by the way you have them speak. Uh, I think because, you know, people get less articulate the more uh, worried they get or stressed they get, I think. And I think you can show a lot through dialogue of that kind of thing. So I tend to kind of leave it. If I think it reads naturally, I tend to leave it, even if it's a bit rambly. As long as, like I say, it doesn't go on forever. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We'll be back with more from Jane Fallon in just a sec. Uh, first, I'd like you to have a listen to this, to this message that was sent over to uh, our Patreon page by Chloe over in Australia. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, She asks a question, or rather she wants me to ask a question to writers that we'll have on in the future. Uh, And I thought you would really appreciate this. Um, uh, Really appreciate the the distinctiveness of this question. I mean, when we sometimes say that this podcast is niche, this is what we mean. Chloe says, uh, I was wondering if you could ask authors what type of font they write their first drafts in. (laughs) Their first drafts. It's brilliant, isn't it? She she goes on to say, I can't stand writing drafts in Times New Roman. It's intimidating. But I don't mind reading it in the edit. Come on. How fantastic is that? Uh, all about fonts. Uh, I'm so pleased that this podcast is a place for such beautiful, nerdy, uh, passionate writing questions. Uh, I thought you'd really appreciate that. Now, Chloe, uh, she got in touch. She supported us over on Patreon. Uh, you can do the same, by the way, to help us out if you fancy by pledging just a dollar or so a month. You get ple- you get thanks, you get bookmarks, badges. You even get a chance for your book to sponsor this show. Uh, I will give it a good old plug. I will let everyone know here in this writing community what you've been up to. I'd love you to back us over on there if you can. It helps us keep bringing you chats with as many of the best authors that we can. You can do that. You can help us out. Uh, anything you can spare goes a long way, I promise, over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Jane Fallon talking about her brand new book, Queen Bee. Uh, in this half, we talk about the epiphany, the joy of having the idea and then having to come up with the shape that forms the story. We also chat about the research that she did for the book and how really she didn't have to look too far to get that done. Uh, and we pick things up talking about the voice of the character uh, and how does she get in the frame of mind to to, to write, to, to become the words of someone else. Yeah, it does take a while. Um, I think that the way that I tend to do it is I will slightly base all of my... I'll get someone I know in my head um, who I feel is similar-ish to one of my characters and I never base character on anyone directly, but I do often use their speech patterns because I feel like that's useful for trying to make people distinct. Um, and it's also useful for me for being able to visualise them. If I can visualise someone I've met or someone I know being that person, it makes it easier as well. What about the general tone and, and the voice of the whole piece? So so Queen Bee is is, is mostly in the first person. Uh, when how, how good are you, do you think? Maybe that's this is the wrong way to ask the question. How easy is it for you to chip in to the voice that the 
the main protagonist and narrator is going to have and that it's not going to be just the same as yours, Jane, from Hampstead. Mm. Yeah, it does take a while. I think you sort of warm up to it through your first draft. My The first draft that I give my editor is really my third or fourth draft, I would think. And so I think in my first draft, real first draft, I'm warming up to that. And so then I'll go back. By the end of the first draft, I'll know much more about how I think they speak. You learn a lot about your characters as you go along, which does sound so pretentious, but you really do. And you learn unexpected things about them. And so I will then go back and completely rewrite them. Like If you looked at one of my original first drafts, the end of the book is a completely different book to the beginning. You know, not only do people often have different names or different jobs or, you know, plot points that didn't exist at the beginning, but also people will speak in a completely different way. And that's because the whole, the, the original first draft is a real learning process for me. And then I'll go back and rewrite it to make it coherent. How often does the actual story points at the end of the, the novel, the way it finishes, how often does that change compared to the synopsis that you wrote all that time ago? Oh God, all, almost always. Yeah, almost always. Um, and a lot of after the first few initial turns that all the plot points will often change um because it's also you know you write and you suddenly become interested in different characters or you go off at a tangent and that you think oh that sounds interesting and so you go off in that direction so yeah I would say I don't think I've ever written an ending in the synopsis that ended up being the actual ending of the book when you're writing that sorry to I'm curious to press on this point are you um are there points in which you are trying to force the story to how your synopsis was or has it almost by that point is it kind of left your mind and the characters are just doing what they want yeah the second one that's why I put it to one side and I don't look at it unless I get to a point where I'm completely stuck and I can't remember what I ever thought I was writing about because I think it's the worst thing you can do is to try and force yourself into characters so sorry force your characters into um, things that they wouldn't necessarily do I think as you get to know your characters you start to know how they'll react to any situation. And I think you have to look at every single plot turn and think, would my this particular character I've created really respond in that way? And if the answer's no, then you can't, even if that's what you need for your plot, you can't go in that direction. You have to go with the way they re- you think they really would behave and then rewrite the plot after that or retweak the plot after that. Because I think you could, when you read something, it's such a turn-off when you think, there's no way that character would do that. And I think you just don't need to do that. You just have to be truthful and you have to be uh, brave is the wrong word, but um, you have to be confident enough to think, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll take it in that direction because that feels real. And then I'll see where I get to. Now we spoke just a second ago about what you'd learned from like writer working on soaps. Um, but just before we get to Queen Bee, because I know this is your 10th novel, the debut getting rid of Matthew. Do you remember, or how much do you remember about Keem, like key lessons uh, that you have kind of picked up on writing through 10 novels. How do you think your style or the way that you tell stories has changed along that way? Uh, I think that the process gets easier to an extent um, in that I now know that I can do it. I now know that I'll get to 40, 50,000 words, and I'll think it's all rubbish, and I want to throw it in the bin, and I'll cry, and I'll throw things around. And um, Everyone I know will say, but you do this every time, and I'll be like, no, but this time it's real. And I know that I can come out the other end of that now. Um, so I think the process get better, gets better. In terms of how my writing has changed, 
Uh, I don't know, really. I think you just find you feel more comfortable, maybe, in your style. Uh, I don't think I think also because I had written a lot, you know, albeit for TV or whatever before I started, I don't think my actual writing has changed that much since my first novel. Well, the new one is is Queen Bee. Tell us about the first moment that the idea for what became this story came to you. What what was the elevator pitch? What was the light bulb moment in your mind where you thought, oh, okay, this is this is what my next book will be? So I always start by trying to think of a relationship that I haven't written about before. And I'd been thinking about neighbours. You know, I'll sort of go trawl through in my head. Haven't I done friends, siblings, whatever. And I thought neighbours might be fun because I think it's interesting that you're, you have to live so closely with these people and you have to have uh, interaction with them, but you don't have any say in who they are at all. Um, and I'd also for a while been bubbling away about an idea of that's kind of super rich at that very specific uh, tribe of people who have all the money in the world, but absolutely no individuality. Um, so they're the kind of people who, if you show them something that you bought, they'll ask you how much it costs before they can give you an opinion on it. Um, and they're a very, very specific like little group of people and they have no joy in their wealth at all. They just have sort of joined another gang, really, whose rules they have to adhere to. So I thought that might be fun. And then I was thinking, well, how's what's a good way to access that group of people? And I thought I should bring in a fish out of water, which is where the idea for Laura came up. Um, because I think that's always a great way to look at a gang of people is to bring someone in that you can look at them through their eyes. So you've got that. And this is going to be a very open-ended part of our chat. I'm sorry, Jay. So you've got, you've got this, you've got like this. Okay. I've never, I've never told the story about neighbors before. I've not, I want to explore that. How do I explore that through Laura? How do you then sift a plot and and need a plot out of, of this idea that you vaguely want to explore? That's a hard one. Cause I don't really know. I just worry away at it for about two months. Um, I just think of endless different scenarios and think, could that be fun? Could that be interesting? Um, So I like the idea of, you know, doing this sort of uber mean girl. uh, And then our our heroine coming up against her. I thought, well, what could I do with that? I could make them have to ally together somehow. I could make our heroine have to make a decision about, does she help this woman out when she discovers that something terrible is going on, even though this woman is being horrible to her? So I just, I make a lot of notes. It's the only time I write freehand, actually. I make a lot of notes. I fill notebooks with absolute string of conscious nonsense. nonsense. Um, yeah, I think it's that. I just worry away at it. And then hopefully you worry away at it. I can't say that. Worry away at it. Uh, and then at some point you you relax your brain a bit and an idea will sort of spring in or a seed of an idea. Fingers crossed that's always happened so far. I always think it won't next time. So it's a joyous moment when you think you've had your epiphany about what you want to write about. Uh, and then, yeah, it, you do have to sort of come up with a shape. I mean, like I say, with me, it's it's thinking, what can I eke out of this? What are the twists and turns, potential twists and turns in here? And that's a fun process, actually. The initial trying to think of an idea is a bit tortuous. And embarking on your first draft can be a bit tortuous as well till you get into it. But that when you've got the germ of an idea that you're having fun with, I really enjoy that part. And that's when I start doing the post-its, writing little plot points, putting them on my desk, seeing what I think. Um, so I do. I spend a lot of time thinking about ways I could take the story before I sort of commit myself and before I start writing. 
And then when, when you're when you're writing the story and it's turning out to be completely different than you thought it would, uh, how many drafts do you tend to get through before you're, you're finally all right to stick this on a shelf? Oh, goodness. So like I say, my first draft that I hand to my editor is probably the third or fourth, I would think, that I haven't shown anybody at all. Uh, and then I'll do a draft with her notes. Uh, and actually, so that's probably it in terms of drafts. And then I'll, I'll keep tweaking. Then you obviously you go through the interminable but incredibly necessary process of going through all the copy edits and mine it's always a timeline thing I always every time I embark on a book I think okay I'm going to keep my eye on the ball with the timeline I'm going to make sure it makes sense and every time you get caught up in the story and then you know you hand your book in and some poor amazing person will spend hours looking at it and come back to you and say okay so on page 430 it's a Friday but on page 19, that was a Tuesday. So this can't be a Friday. And then you have to go through the whole thing. And it happens every single time. And that takes forever. So you do a couple of drafts of that. Uh, so in terms of actual, just to get back to your, your actual question, in terms of actual writing drafts, I would say probably four or five. And then obviously the corrections, corrections, corrections in terms of, like I say, timeline and um, uh, you know, just making sure everything is consistent. And the, your spelling is correct. I know we've we've spoken quite a lot about dialogue. So, with the writing on the page um, and and overwriting, how keen are you to make sure that the next word that is coming that you're writing down is the word that is going to stay there for a while? Do they have to be perfect for you, or is it just let, let's get out my eighty, ninety thousand, or whatever it is, and then we'll try and fix it from there? Yeah, it's that. It's exactly the second one. I think if you, for me anyway, if I worry too much, this is what I did for the first thirty-five years of my attempting to write a novel life. I would worry over every single word, and so I never progressed. I never got through the story. I never got into the flow of it really. Um, and I need to do that so badly in order to get my story and my characters in my head. I need to just throw them into situations and see what happens. So I don't at all. You know, I like to. I try and make it funny and entertaining and all of that kind of stuff but I definitely don't worry about every word in the first draft I just want to see if the story works and see if I can have fun with it so and it's also to be honest because I find that the um the thought of a hundred thousand words is terrifying and every time I start a book it looks like this interminable mountain that you're never going to be able to climb so psychologically it's great for me to get through a version of that and I know that I can then, you know, I enjoy editing. I enjoy going back. I enjoy playing with it. So I know that I can do all that as long as I can just get something down on the page in the first place. Quite a lot of the authors I chat to are crime writers. So they rely heavy on research. You know, if your detective's here, you have to make sure that they're doing the proper police procedure yeah. and all of that. Uh, you're not writing that. So what thought do you give to research? I mean, you, you were talking about uh, this sect of people who live very vacuous lives where the only thing they're concerned about is money. Do you have to, do you have to research that heavily? Do you have to like go and absorb yourself in these people? Uh, with that one, sadly, I've met quite a few of those people and uh, I live in an area where there are little enclaves like that enclave with those people. So that I sort of knew about, but no, I do, if they, you know, if I have someone doing something, a job that I maybe don't know a hundred percent or whatever, I will always do some research. I have, one of my nieces is great, actually, and she will do research for me if I need stuff. So I'll send her a list of questions um, that, you know, can be anything random. How do you, how long do you bake a cake for? Or, you know, whatever, any little details that I'm putting in that I want to make sure are right, she'll 
double check for me, which is fantastic. Oh, I'm curious about where these enclaves are now. Uh, and last, <laughs> I'll tell you off air. <laughs> um, lastly, I mean, you were talking about the absolute joy of it earlier on. What's the worst part? But this is terrible. What's the worst part about writing for you? I think it's the fear. I think, you know, you go through periods. I go through periods where I'm really enjoying it. Like on my new one at the moment, I've suddenly hit a my stride. I'm at 55,000 words and I've suddenly hit my stride and I'm thinking, oh, I'm really enjoying this bit. But actually, there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of second guessing, you know, and you, you can't get into that. You can't get into second guessing what you think people are going to think of it or if people are going to enjoy it because you start to write too self-consciously. But for me, the worst thing is me in my own head. It's like it's battling away, trying to not question what I'm doing, trying to not be too critical of myself. Um, yeah, all of that can get quite wearing. You've done this 10 times now. Yeah. Have you figured out any way to suppress that demon? No, <laughs> no. In fact, you would think it would get better, but to some extent it gets worse because you think, well, what if this one is the one that everyone says is absolute rubbish or doesn't sell any copies or whatever? Um no, it's hard. I think it just comes with the territory, really. I think maybe if you just thought everything you wrote was fantastic, then it probably wouldn't be very good. You wouldn't be being critical enough, maybe. I think you have to have a certain amount of self-doubt. You know, you have to put yourself through the ringer to make sure that you really do the best job you can do. So I guess it kind of comes with the territory, but it doesn't really get any easier. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Jane Fallon for coming on the show. Uh, you can buy her new novel, her 10th novel, uh, using the link that you'll find in the episode notes wherever you're listening. You can also grab it at writersroutine.com. While you're on there, uh, you can listen to all the episodes we've done, find the best way for you to subscribe to us so you never miss, a, miss an episode, uh, and you can get in touch as well uh, on the contact form at writersroutine.com. Uh, now, next week, we will chat to Trevor Wood uh, about moving from playwriting uh, to his debut thriller, uh, which is going great guns at the moment. It's been seriously critically acclaimed. You can hear about that next week. In the meantime, uh, I'd love you to uh, support us on Patreon if you can, patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, and you can leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That's always helpful as well. Uh, and I will see you next week with Trevor Woods on Writer's Routine. Bye. <laughs>